Thank you for being here today. It's uh, such a beautiful day outside. I expected there to be less people sitting in the seats, but I'm, I'm thankful that you're here, even though it's hot and boiling in this room. So thank you for that. So today we're going to be talking about Psalm 130, as Dara read this morning. Psalm 130 is about sin and forgiveness, and it's about waiting on God. It tells us what to do when we are in the depths of our own sinfulness and facing the consequences of those sins. Sometimes when we're in the deepest, darkest pit of our own despair due to our own sinful mistakes, we, wanna, we tend to want to stay there. Maybe it's because we are ashamed to approach a holy God. Maybe it's because we don't feel that God can or will forgive us. Maybe we feel that God wants to punish us and have us sit in our own misery for a while to prove a point. But regardless of the excuse, some of us tend to stay down when sin brings us down. Or maybe you're the opposite. Maybe when you sin, you don't want to approach God until you've got it all figured out and set everything right. And then you come to God and ask for God's forgiveness after you've corrected everything. But is that how God wants us to approach him when it comes to sin? Do we have to avoid God when we've sinned, or do we have to get it all sorted out on our own power before we can approach God? This psalm is also about waiting on God. When we are waiting for God's deliverance, we tend to lack patience, let's be honest. We tend to wait in despair, agony, hopelessness, and impatience. But is this what God wants for his children? These answers can be found in Psalm 130. But let's back up a little bit. Let me tell you a little bit about what the Psalms were. The Psalms were the divinely inspired hymn book for the public, of worship, for the public worship of God in ancient Israel. The Psalms were not to be simply read or recited. They were intended to be sung. Singing the Psalms penetrated the minds and imagination of the people as only music can do. When Jesus triumphantly entered Jerusalem, the crowd spontaneously broke out into a line from Psalm 118. This is how imprinted the Psalms were on their hearts. There's evidence in Colossians and 1 Corinthians that the early church also sang and prayed the Psalms. Paul encouraged the Colossian church to admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. In the Middle Ages, the Psalter, or uh, the, basically the standalone volume of just the Psalms, was the only part of the Bible a layperson was likely to own. And it was probably the most familiar book for most people in the, in, the, in the Middle Ages. Early church leaders and pastors prescribed the Psalms as a main diet of song in worshiping congregations. Churches for centuries have been using the Psalms to worship, even today. At Galway City Church, we continue to sing psalms and worship songs based on the psalms. And when we do this, we are entering into that rich tradition. Even in non-Christian settings, the psalms have a way of penetrating the hearts and minds of human beings. I remember one of my favorite concert films of U2 performing at the famous Red Rocks Amphitheater in Colorado, which is only a few minutes from where we actually used to live. It was raining on this night when they filmed it, and the torches on the stage lit up the natural red rock formations uh, that made up the stage and the natural amphitheater surrounding it. 
Bono struts out and he says, sing this with me. This is 40. In fact, it was Psalm 40. Now, I don't have a voice like Bono, but so bear with me. But he's saying, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He lifts me up out of the pit, out of the miry clay, and I will sing, sing a new song. Later in the song, he works the audience into a frenzy who are now all singing along with him. It was a holy experience. Bono had the entire audience, which I'm sure most of which were non-Christian, singing a psalm in unknowing praise and worship to God. The psalms are special. Now, why are the psalms so valuable and attractive to the human soul? First, Luther called the psalms a mini-Bible. The psalms give an overview of salvation history from creation to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. They discuss the establishment of the, of the tabernacle and the temple, the exile of God's people due to unfaithfulness. And the Psalms point us to the coming messianic redemption and the renewal of all things. It discusses the doctrines of revelation, of God, of human nature, and of sin. But the Psalms were not just for theological instruction. One of the ancient church fathers, Athanasius, wrote, Whatever your particular need or trouble, from this same book, the Psalms, you can select a form of words to fit it so that you learn the way to remedy your ill. Every situation in life is represented in the Psalms. The Psalms train you for every possible spiritual, social, and emotional condition. The Psalms teach you what the dangers in life are, what you should keep in mind, what your attitude should be, how to talk to God about it, and how to get from God the help that you need. The Psalms also help us to see God. God not as we hope him to be, but God as he actually reveals himself. Lastly, most of the Psalms read in light of the entire Bible bring us to Jesus. In fact, many Psalms are prophetic and are directly about Jesus. And Jesus loved the Psalms. Did you know that it's one of the books of the Bible that Jesus quotes more than any other book? It's true. That alone should get us pumped up to dive into the book of Psalms. And now that I've got you all excited, I can feel it. You guys are excited, right? All right, let's do this. Let's look at one of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 130 is from a special group of Psalms called the Songs of Ascent, which range from Psalm 120 to 134. Four of these are attributed to King David, one to Solomon, and then the rest are from anonymous authors. So why the Songs of Ascent? The city of Jerusalem is situated on a high hill, and Jews traveling there for one of the three main annual festivals traditionally sang these songs on the ascent, or the, upward, uh, the up uphill road to the city. According to tradition, the Jewish priests would also sing some of these songs of ascent as they walked up the steps into the temple in Jerusalem. Each song of ascent had its own theme, and the theme of Psalm 130 is a prayer of repentance. Also, out of the 150 psalms in the Bible, seven of these are traditionally known as penitential psalms. These psalms express sorrow because of sin and the desire for repentance and removal of the source of affliction. These psalms all had a similar structure. 
First, the author issues a cry for help during adversity. Second, there's a description of a current dire situation. And then third, there's a specific request for help. Psalm 130 is probably one of the most well-known of the penitential psalms. So if you have your Bible with you, we're going to now dig into the psalm. In verse 1, the psalmist writes, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The depths were often a biblical metaphor for adversity and trouble. To the godly, sin, guilt, uh, and God's fatherly discipline are like being cast into the depths of the sea. This indicates a feeling of alienation from God. There's nowhere for the psalmist to look but up. In verse 2, he writes, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist pleads that his voice be heard and cries out to the Lord to grant him an audience. It is said that the best prayers come from a strong inward necessity. When things are going well in life, meaningful prayer is often the first thing to go. But when we are tossed around by the storms of life, this is when we reach out for the Lord's rescue. The psalmist was clearly in one of these moments and desired God's hand to intervene. The psalmist then remembers something about God's character that will help him. In verses 3 and 4, he writes, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you... There is forgiveness that you may be feared. If God kept a record of our sins in the sense of keeping an itemized account of each of our transgressions and then expecting us to pay for those sins, the situation would be hopeless for us. But God does not keep our sins in mind. If he did, even the godliest person could not stand in his presence. There is forgiveness for the guilty sinner And there is forgiveness for the sinning saint. Now, why should this unmerited grace and unearned forgiveness uh, cause us to fear the Lord? And what does he mean by fear? Should we be afraid of God? The fear that the psalmist describes here doesn't mean that we should be afraid of God. It, It means reverence, trust, love, worship, and awe. When we think of the great lengths to which God went to bridge the gap between us and him. When we realize the great price that Jesus had to pay to save us from our sins. And when we begin to understand that this great forgiveness is full, free, and eternal. It should bring us great joy and thankfulness. The God of the universe loves us. He saves us. He pursues us, and this should cause us to revere him and to stand in awe at his great mercy and his unfailing love toward us. In verses 5 and 6, it says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. What is the psalmist waiting for here? It's not forgiveness. Although he doesn't directly ask for forgiveness, it's definitely implied in verses 3 and 4. 
And the forgiveness is assured as soon as he confesses. Rather, the psalmist is waiting for the deliverance from the depths. Even though his sins are forgiven, the psalmist is still sitting in the consequences of his sin. And he's waiting for deliverance. Sometimes God answers immediately. And sometimes he teaches us to wait. Here the psalmist has learned to wait for the Lord, to hope in God's word and to believe his promise to hear and answer. As a guard watchman watches and longs for the morning so that he can be relieved from duty, so the psalmist waits for the Lord's deliverance from the depths. I remember that feeling. In my early 20s, I used to work uh, the night shift, or we called it the graveyard shift, at a copy and printing store. There were no customers in the middle of the night, and all the work that had to be done was usually accomplished early. So all there was to do was to stare out the window and long for the first sight of sunlight to appear on the horizon, which means that I could clock out and go get some sleep. That's how it felt for the guard watchman, for the psalmist, waiting for his deliverance. There's an even wider application here. All Christians today wait and watch for Christ's return when everything will be made right. We can identify with these feelings that the psalmist expresses. That's the beauty of the psalms. They give wings to thoughts and emotions that we are still having today. In verses 7 and 8, The psalmist says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The last two verses of the psalm seem to be the testimony of the psalmist after his prayer for deliverance has been answered. Having proved God's faithfulness to himself, he wants others to share in that experience also. Israel is encouraged to hope in the Lord. Three reasons are given. First, with the Lord, there is steadfast love. Second, there is plentiful redemption. And finally, God's willingness to redeem Israel from their sins. While the psalm opens in the depths and darkness of a gloom, it it, it closes with a vibrant call to trust in the God for whom no problem is too large and no dilemma too complex. God's steadfast love and plentiful redemption are unmerited favors which he bestows on his children. So how do we apply these verses today into our own lives? My first application is this. Know where to look when we're in the depths of sin. The psalmist doesn't mince words here. In the first few verses, he is in the depths of life. He's not doing well. He's in utter despair due to some sin that is eating him away. He's crying out to God because there is nowhere else to turn. Like a heavy weight, sin tends to drag us to the bottom. But God made us for the heights. From the bottom of the pit, there is nowhere to look but up. He pleads for God to hear his voice. And then instantly, the psalmist knows that he is forgiven, and he marvels at God's forgiveness. The important lesson here is to look up when we are down in the depths. If we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. 
when we are tempted to hide our head and remain in our sins, the psalmist reminds us to look up, remember what we know about God's forgiveness, and then to accept it. We don't have to remain in the depths. We can confess our sins and God will forgive them. And don't feel like you have to set everything right before you can approach God. God accepts you as you are and he will transform you into his likeness as you come to him seeking forgiveness and rely on him to change you. My second application point is to learn to wait in hope. When we confess our sins, God is gracious to forgive them and to cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea, as it says in Micah 7.19. There are parts of the ocean that are so deep that sea explorers even, haven't even studied them yet. That's where God puts our sins, metaphorically speaking. He forgives them and he casts them away from us and buries them at the deepest part of the sea. This is good news for us who place our faith in God. However, sometimes God allows us to sit in the consequences of our sin for a while so that we can learn to depend on him. The psalmist is going through this, he, and he says that he waits for the Lord and puts his hope in God's promises. We are encouraged through this psalm to do the same. Our sins are forgiven immediately upon our confession but the consequences can linger on. But God will deliver us from even those consequences as we learn to depend on him, place our hope in his word, and wait in hopeful anticipation for his deliverance. My third application point is this. Let's be a church community where it is safe and okay to share our, our sins and our struggles with each other. God's forgiveness, while, while true and real, can seem theoretical sometimes. It's in the community of safe brothers and sisters in Christ where forgiveness is made to feel more accessible and tangible. Are we a forgiving people? Do we let go of sins committed against us, or do we tend to hold a grudge? Do we speak truth into each other's life in love? Do we provide a safe place for people who are crying from the depths? If not, then we have work to do. The church isn't a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. When someone in our church family is struggling, it's our job to hold them up, to come alongside them and lift them up in prayer. It's our job to love and restore our brothers and sisters because tomorrow we may, we may need that same love and support for ourselves. I've heard it said that the rest of the Bible speaks to us. But the Psalms speak for us. And I love that description. Whether you are experiencing the highest highs or the lowest lows, there is a Psalm to fit your need. Psalm 130 deals with sinful regret, calling out to the Lord in hopeful anticipation and then receiving unmerited forgiveness. Psalm 130 tells us where to go when we are in the deepest depths. And it gives us hope that God will rescue us when we call out to him. Even if our circumstances don't change immediately, God has promised that he will redeem us. So we wait patiently as the night watchman waits for the morning sunlight.
I'm sure you've all used a calculator at some point in your life. Most of our phones have one pre-installed, right? This is one of my son's, uh, they don't need it anymore because leaving cert is over, but so I borrowed it. Uh, so how many times, like me, have you been using a calculator and you're doing a long equation and adding in a bunch of sums when you accidentally hit a wrong button and you have to start all over again? Right? Yeah, most of us. But thankfully, there's that clear button, right? There's that button that makes all of our mistakes go away, and we can start again with a clean slate. There's no record of that mistake. It's lost forever. That's what happens to our sins when God forgives us. The consequences may remain. We still have to start all over again and do the equation from scratch, but the mistake is gone forever. The point of Psalm 130 isn't to remind people of their sinfulness. My guess is some of us are keenly aware of where we fall short, while others of us need a good kick in the bottom to realize our sins. But the point of Psalm 130 is to remind people that the darkness of the depths is not life as God intended it, and that such darkness is not the end of our story. Martin Luther called Psalm 130 one of the Pauline Psalms. That means basically it's, it's like something the Apostle Paul would have written. Because it articulated so well Paul's thought on the reality of sin and the grace from God that remedies it. In Romans 5.8, Paul says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we accept Christ as our Savior and ask for forgiveness, for our sins, God hits that clear button on our sins. And not only are they forgiven, but they are gone forever, remembered no more. Just as we hit the clear button on that calculator, there is no more record of our mistake. While we can certainly punish ourselves by carrying our guilt with us and staying in the depths, the God-designed way to hit that clear button on our sins is by way of admission confession, and forgiveness. The advantage of God's way is that we don't have to carry the guilt any longer. Psalm 130 is a witness to this. This psalm carries good news for us. Amen? God loves us and he lifts our burdens. We don't have to carry it any longer. To close this morning, I want to leave you from a quote. I love this quote from author Lewis Drummond. He writes this, Forgiveness transcends finite human reason. The mere thought that one's entire sin account can be utterly eradicated is staggering. Yet it is quite clear that the forgiveness of sins strikes at the very core of human need and experience. It, sp it speaks of guilt gone, remorse removed, depression disappearing, and emptiness of life eradicated. What power there is in forgiveness. And it all comes abundantly from the gracious, gracious hand of God. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the forgiveness that you give us. Thank you for the cost that you paid to provide that forgiveness. Thank you for the cross of Christ and what that means for us. Help us to look to you when we sin. Help us to seek you out when we are in the depths of despair. 
Help us to rely on you as we struggle to climb out of the pit, knowing that you are ready and willing to lift us out by your great love and mercy. Thank you for your unfailing love and your unmerited redemption. We love you and we serve you with our life. Amen.